Let's pray. Father in heaven, I come to you again this morning. I pray that you would be with me as I share the message. I ask for your words, Lord, your wisdom, and your convicting in my own heart. Lord, I just pray that we would learn from your word this morning according to your will. pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> so I'm not sure how this happens other than a lack of thinking on my part. Last year it happened as well, but it made a little more sense. It was the first day of Bible school, and I think uh, Kevin didn't think about the fact that when he made a PowerPoint that there would be something on the wall up there. I sat here for a week and looked at that thing on the wall. I don't often make a PowerPoint for a message, but I did for this morning and didn't even think about it. So... It's going to be a little distorted at times and a little hard to see, and uh, hopefully it'll work out okay. A few weeks ago, I preached a message that, uh, talking about loving within the brotherhood and, and uh, kind of on that theme, if you remember. And that message I had not really planned to share. I had planned to share something different, not what I'm sharing this morning. I had planned to share something different and... I don't know, I think it was Saturday sometime, it just didn't seem that that was where I should go, and so I went to the Word, and there was a passage that I had noticed earlier, and kind of started there, and sometime, I don't know, maybe about three-quarter of the way of preparing that, I thought, you know, <clears throat> this message is, I think, really fitting for us as a brotherhood right now. It's, I see why the Lord was putting that together. This message this morning has been on my mind for a while, and I just put off sharing it but I felt it was time to, to do that. I uh, felt the Lord leading to do that. So we're going to talk about that this morning. And along with um, not actually uh, thinking about the PowerPoint, I'm also not sure where my clicker's at. So I hope this thing works. And <clears throat> Okay. I want to... Um, Look this morning at the subject of self-righteousness. I don't know what you think about when you think about self-righteousness, but uh, it is a subject. It's a term I hear sometimes, and so I thought maybe it's something we should look at. So what does it mean? And incidentally, my view here on my tablet isn't quite what I want, so I might have to turn around a few times and look back there to see for sure what's up here and make sure we're at the right spot. So excuse that this morning. So what does it mean to be self-righteous? Well, now it's not wanting to go forward. I don't know what's going on here this morning. Let's try this again. There we go. So, Merriam-Webster says it like this. Their definition is convinced of one's own righteousness, especially in contrast with the actions and beliefs of others. Narrow-mindedly moralistic. And I think that is what we often think of when somebody mentions self-righteousness. I thought about that, though, and is that really what self-righteousness is? And I thought, well, I'm going to go to... Uh, 
Webster Dictionary and see what it says in there. Because he's often maybe a little more biblical in his interpretations, his definitions. I couldn't find the word in that dictionary. At least not the one I was looking at. It didn't exist. Maybe they didn't have self-righteous people back then. Maybe they called them something else. Or maybe their definition would have been a little bit different anyway. I think actually that the idea of self-righteousness in another sense is someone being righteous in their own self without the need of God's justification. So someone is truly self-righteous. They believe they are righteous. <clears throat> Aside from what God does to righteous. And it can mean someone who puts their, their, themselves in contrast with others, but it may not as well. So let's think about uh, this. Let's go to Proverbs. I want to look at some different uh, scriptures in Proverbs that warn us about ourselves and how we think about ourselves. <clears throat> so in Proverbs chapter 29, starting at verse 23, or looking at 23, and I have some other scriptures we're going to look at. So Proverbs 29, 23 says, A man's pride shall bring him low, but honor shall uphold the humble in spirit. Self-righteousness can be an attitude of pride, that we are good enough on our own, or that we are so good, or that we do better than anyone else, so I must be righteous. And so that can be uh, the idea. It's, it can be a matter of pride. Often it is. And uh, let's take a look at uh, Proverbs 11, verse 2, where it says, when pride cometh, then cometh shame, but with the lowly is wisdom. Also, Proverbs 16, <clears throat> verse 2. All the ways of a man are clean in his own eyes, but the Lord weigheth the spirits. So we can... Think in, our, in ourselves that, well, I'm right. Of course I am. I, I'm righteous. I've got it together. And yet the Lord is the one who looks at us and who understands. Let's turn now to the New Testament, to Romans, and take a look at Romans chapter 3. <clears throat> and looking at verses 9 and 10. And we could... Remember, the first three chapters of Romans, all of them, basically set out to prove that no one is righteous before God. All are sinners. Jews, Gentiles, it doesn't matter who you are, where you came from, everyone is a sinner. If you take a look at um, the book of Romans, the first several chapters. And in Romans 3, verses 9 and 10 says, What then? Are we better than they? No, in no wise, for we have before proved both Jews and Gentiles that they are all under sin. As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none that understandeth, there is none that seeketh after God. So on our own, there is none that is righteous. And in Matthew chapter 23... Uh, you'll see that, and we're not going to turn there, but Jesus over and over says, Scribes, Pharisees, hypocrites, 
scribes, Pharisees, hypocrites. He calls the scribes and the Pharisees hypocrites over and over and over again in Matthew chapter 23. Now, I want to turn to a passage here in uh, Luke chapter 18. And I put that picture on there and you can almost see it with the thermometer there. You've got a Pharisee there behind the thermometer and a man and and a publican over there beside him. <clears throat> so let's turn to Luke chapter 18 and let's look at that story. <clears throat> so Jesus gives this parable starting at verse 9 of Luke 18. And he said, He spake this parable unto certain which, now notice here, trusted in themselves that they were righteous. Now that's total self-righteousness there. That's true self-righteousness. They trusted in themselves that they were righteous. And they despised others. So there you have that. So he says, Two men went up into the temple to pray, the one a Pharisee and the other a publican. The Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself, God, I thank thee that I am not as other men are, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even as this publican. I fast twice in the week. I give tithes of all that I possess. And the publican, standing afar off, would not lift up so much as his eyes unto heaven, but smote upon his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other, for every one that exalteth himself shall be abased, and he that humbleth himself shall be exalted." So it's interesting that this man uh, thought he was so righteous, and it says that he prayed <clears throat> with himself. Now that's an interesting statement. He didn't pray with God. He prayed with himself. Uh, apparently he didn't need God very much. He was good enough on his own. He just prayed with himself. And he said that he was thankful. Now he did mention uh, that it says... In verse 11, he does say, God, I thank thee. He said he was thankful that he was not as other sinners. Um, he, was, uh, he was not as others. He wasn't an extortioner or a robber. He wasn't unjust or unrighteous in his eyes at least. He wasn't an adulterer. And he wasn't a publican like that other man was. Okay? Wow. So those were the things he weren't. He had a list of the things he was not, and then he had a list of the things that he did right. And he fasted twice a week. He gave tithes of everything that uh, he did. Now, I want to ask this question. Was fasting wrong? Was it wrong to fast? Not for the right reasons. But if he thought that's what made him holy, it didn't do him any good. Um, Was tithing wrong? Well, according to the law that he was supposed to be following, he was supposed to tithe of everything. Jesus talks about the fact when he was talking to the Pharisees one time, he says you tithe of even the little berries and the, the little, uh, the, all your uh, stuff that you pick, you know, you pick off little berries and one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, boop, one for God, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, one for God. And that was kind of, and then he said, that's fine, you ought to do that, but you leave the weightier matters of the law undone. 
And that was the problem. There was nothing wrong with the fact that this man tithed. And the other question I have, was it wrong to be thankful that he was not living in sin? I'm thankful that I'm not spending the rest of my life in prison for killing someone. I'm thankful for that. Depending on where I would have been born and what circumstances I may have been in, uh, maybe I would have done that. I don't know. I'm thankful I'm not. I'm thankful that, that that's not where I'm at. I'm thankful that, you know, he, this man was thankful that he wasn't an extortioner. Well, I'm thankful that's not what I'm doing, or um, adulterer, uh, those kinds of things. Are we thankful that we're not living in those sins? Uh, I hope we're not. But the attitude was wrong. It wasn't so much that he was thankful that he wasn't, but again, he was taking all the credit for it. If he would have said, God, <clears throat> thank you for the fact that you have been merciful to me and that I have felt your spirit and that you have convicted me and that I don't live in those things, that would have been one thing. But that wasn't what he was saying. Now, on the other hand, you have the problem here, and that is he forgot that only God can justify a sinner, and he was proud of the things that he thought justified himself. And that was the problem. He was comparing himself with others, and the Bible says it's not wise to compare ourselves with others. And so, what does make a person right? And when we think about righteousness, and you've heard me say this before, in the Greek there's one word family that when it comes into the English, we break it into two word families. One word family is the, what I would call the just word family, and the other is the right word family. You go back to the Greek, they're basically the same word family. So when you say someone is righteous or they are just, it's the same word family in the Greek. Uh, someone has been, there used to be an old word that was in the English that I think would make sense. It was to rightify. Someone had been rightified. And that meant basically to be justified. They were seen as just. And so when one has been truly justified in the eyes of God, he has been made right or he has been made righteous. He has a righteous standing with God. And how does that happen? Well, I want to actually uh, turn to a couple of passages and read, and I can't spend the time to, to go over it in detail, but I think it's good for us to read through it. Let's go back to Romans, where we were in Romans chapter 3, and I want you to take your Bibles and follow with me so that you can see this, because I'm not going to spend a lot of time going back over and expounding on these passages. But it talks here about being justified or being made right. And so we'll start reading in, verse, um, in chapter 3, starting at verse 21. But now the righteous of God without the law is manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God, which is by faith of Jesus Christ unto all and upon all them that believe. For there is no difference. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God has set forth to be a propitiation through faith in His blood to declare His righteousness for the remission of sins that are past through the forbearance of God, 
to declare, I say at this time, his righteousness, that he might be just or right and the justifier of him that believeth in Jesus. Where is boasting then? It is excluded. By the law, by what law? Of works? Nay, but by the law of faith. Therefore, we conclude that a man is justified by faith without the deeds of the law. If, the, if he is he the God of the Jews only, is he not also the God of the Gentiles? Yes, of the Gentiles also. Seeing it is one God which shall justify the circumcision by faith, the uncircumcision through faith, do we then make void the law through faith? God forbid. Yea, we establish the law. What shall we say then? That Abraham, our father, as pertaining to flesh, hath found. For if Abraham were justified by works, he hath whereof to glory, but not before God. For what saith the Scripture? Abraham believed God, and it was counted unto him for righteousness. Now, to him that worketh uh, is the reward not reckoned. And by the way, that word reckoned and counted and imputed in this passage, just remember, it's all the same word in the Greek. I'm not sure why it's so many different words in Romans in the English, but it is. So as we think about it, as I go down through here, when it says counted or reckoned, it's uh, basically to be imputed or put on their account. So, in verse 4, Now, to him that worketh is the reward not reckoned of grace, but of debt. But to him that worketh not, but believeth on him that justifieth the ungodly, his faith is counted for righteousness. Even as David also describe the blessedness of the man unto whom God imputeth righteousness without work, saying, Blessed are, those, blessed are they whose iniquities are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man at whom the Lord will not impute sin. Cometh this blessedness upon the circumcision only or upon the uncircumcision also? For we say that faith was reckoned to Abraham for righteousness. How was it then reckoned? when he was in circumcision or uncircumcision. Not in circumcision, but his uncircumcision. He's explaining here the difference between the Jews and the Gentiles and the fact that there isn't one. And he received the sign of circumcision, the seal of righteousness of faith, which he had not yet being circumcised, that he might be the father of all them that believe, though they be not circumcised, that righteousness might be imputed unto them also. And the father of circumcision to them who are not of the circumcision only, but, all to, but who also walk in the steps that, of faith of our father Abraham, which he had being yet uncircumcised. For the promise that he should be the heir of the world was not to Abraham or to his seed through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if they which are of the law be heirs, faith is made void, and the promise made of none effect. Because the law worketh wrath, for there where no law is, there is no transgression. Therefore, it is of faith that it might be by grace to the end. The promise might be sure to all the seed, not to that only which is of the law, but also which is of faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made thee a father of many nations, before whom uh, he believed, even God, who quickeneth the dead, and calleth those things which be not as though they were. Who against hope believed in hope that he might become the father of many nations according to that which was spoken, so shall thy seed be. And being not weak in faith, he considered not his own body now dead when he was about a hundred years old, neither yet the deadness of Sarah's womb. He staggered not at the promise of God through unbelief, but was strong in faith, giving glory to God. And being fully persuaded of what he had promised, that's what God had promised, 
he was able also to perform. And therefore it was imputed to him for righteousness. Now, it was not imputed for his sakes alone, that it was imputed, it was not written for his sake alone, it was imputed to him, but for us also to whom it shall be imputed, if we believe on him that raised up Jesus our Lord from the dead, who was delivered for our um, transgressions, or our, delivered for our offenses, and was raised again for our justification. Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through the Lord Jesus Christ, by whom we also have access by faith into his grace, wherein we stand and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Okay, if you read this passage, and maybe it was a little long, and maybe I lost some of you going through that, but I hope you were paying attention there to that passage. If you are going to be righteous in God's eyes, it will be through faith in His Son and the provision that God has given. Now, what's that faith look like? And sometimes we can, we can run amok a little bit. Let's go to James. James and um, Romans go together well if we think about this. So in James chapter 2, starting at verse 14. <clears throat> what do it, it profiteth, my brother? No man say he have faith and have not works. Can faith save him? If a brother or sister be naked and destitute of daily food... And one of you say unto them, Depart in peace, ye be, be ye warmed and filled, notwithstanding ye give them not those things which are needful for the body, what doeth it profit? Even so faith, if it hath not works, is dead, being alone. Yea, a man may say, Thou hast faith, and I have works. Show me thy faith without thy works, and I will show thee my faith by my works. Thou believest that there is one God, thou doest well. The devils also believe and tremble. But wilt thou know, O vain man, that faith without works is dead? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered Isaac his son upon the altar? Seest thou how faith wrought with his works, and by works was faith made perfect? And the scriptures fulfilled which saith, Abraham believed God, and it was imputed unto him for righteousness, and he was called the friend of God. Ye see then how that by works a man is justified, not by faith only. Likewise also was not Rahab the harlot justified by works when she had received the messengers and had sent them out another way? For as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead also. Sometimes I think when it comes to justification, we can fall into this ditch of Romans without thinking about what does that kind of saving faith look like. Well, it looks like what James describes. Or we can fall in the ditch of James where, no, I'm justified by my works because Abraham was, so I'm justified by my works and leaving faith out of it. No, faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and the provision that he made for sin and that God raised him from the dead, that was one of the things that was asked of early Christians. Do you believe that Jesus Christ was raised from the dead? And if they said yes, that had then they were able to be a part of the brotherhood. If they would say, no, I don't believe God raised up Jesus from the dead, okay, well, then you're not a believer, you're not part of us. It's just that simple. <clears throat> but yet, James comes along here and says, look, yes, you are saved by that kind of faith, but that kind of faith is a faith that works. Now, maybe you've been sitting here and you've been thinking, well, I know somebody that's self-righteous. Yeah, I've got, I, I could, yeah, I could list a few of them. I know people who think of all the good things they can do and, and you know, they look down on others and on and on. And 
Well, I want this message to be balanced, so let's move on. So this picture here, of which you can't see because there's a thermometer in the way, um, shows a guy right here. And back here you can almost see. It's kind of a Pharisee back here. And here's a guy that looks like he might be one. But Let's suppose for a minute that the prayers would be a little bit different in that parable. <clears throat> Let's suppose that this guy says, God, I thank thee that I am not like this Pharisee. I am more tolerant, more caring, more accepting of others. I don't talk about my own good works. I don't consider myself better than others. I don't even claim to know the truth, or at least not all of it. I care more about the things that really matter. And I don't look on the outward appearance. I read my Bible with a more open perspective and consider one's and consider others' interpretations good enough as long as they love Jesus. And let's suppose that the other man said, God, I thank thee that you have cleansed me by your blood and justified me through faith. I deeply respect your word and want to live it out, obeying it in every aspect of my life. I care that so many take our, your words so lightly. I am concerned that my fellow believers might take the easy road and live worldly, not being discerning, leading the next generation astray. Please help me to rightly divide your word and remain faithful. Which one of those two went home justified, do you think? So maybe when I ask you if you knew someone that was self-righteous, could you have fallen into the camp of the second guy? Do we sometimes justify ourselves by saying, I'm not like that Pharisee? Which, is that any less self-righteous than the other? Is the question. It's not right to be self-righteous like the Pharisee was. But it's not right to be self-righteous thanking God that you're not like the Pharisee either. Well, it is, however, important how we speak. It is how we say things. So in James chapter 3... Part of verse 2 says, In many things we offend all. If any man offend not in word, the same is a perfect man, and able also to bridle the whole body. And so, if we have strong beliefs and convictions, or if we don't, it's still important how we say those things. Sometimes our words offend in ways that we lose out on what we were even trying to accomplish. I'm sure I do that at times. But on the other hand, are we living in a culture that basically says we can't really say much of anything that's going to offend someone? 
What about the words of Jesus? He didn't always say things that people wanted to hear. What about John the Baptist? I'm afraid sometimes John the Baptist would be labeled as a self-righteous whatever. He called people, well, you vipers, you snakes. Or what about Paul? In Titus, he's mentioning there, he's talking in Titus about the Cretans, and he said, or the Cretans, however you say it, he said, uh, one of their own poets basically said they're lazy, uh, they're idle, they're gluttons. And he says, this is true. Wow. Didn't he just label a whole bunch of people? So he said, deal with it wisely. Basically, he's telling Titus, look out. This is In Acts chapter 13, there's that guy that tries to get in the way of him witnessing to someone. And I can't quote it verbatim, but basically he says, you child of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, wilt thou not cease to pervert the right ways of the Lord? Stick your finger in somebody's nose and say that today. I don't care what they are or who they are, and somebody's going to label you. Well, I think it has to do with our language and our words. Are they personal slams, or is it a rebuke dealing with truth and maybe someone's actions? When Paul spoke to those, that guy there on the Isle of Cyprus, I think it's where they were at when that was happening, um, it was because of what the man was doing and what he believed, what he was getting in the way of. He didn't just go up to him and say something nasty to him because he just didn't like him. It wasn't the point. Neither did Jesus. Neither did John the Baptist. But they did, and they were willing to confront wrong and say the things sometimes that needed to be said. I think sometimes uh, we can get caught up in mislabeling. One of the mislabels that we put out there sometimes is Pharisee. We may say, well, he's just a Pharisee. <clears throat> and maybe don't even understand what the first century Pharisees were like. Often we label somebody a Pharisee if they have beliefs that we don't like. It's often how it happens. Not always, but often. I remember someone talking one time about a, a brother that would have went to this church. He's long since passed away. And I remember somebody saying something to him about him and said, Well, he's so heavenly minded, he's no earthly good. You ever heard that said about somebody? I haven't seen a person like that yet. I have yet to see the person that is so heavenly minded that they are not doing any good on earth. But I have seen a lot of people that are so earthly minded they're no heavenly good. I can find a lot of those folks. So sometimes we mislabel people, maybe because they're actually getting something done in the kingdom and I'm not, and so I don't like it, so I mislabel. On the other hand, we can mislabel, I think, with these two words, conservative or liberal. Now, I think sometimes we use those terms to just help us understand where we're at, what we're doing. I'll just tell you right now, much of the Mennonite church today in Goshen is extremely liberal. And I think you understand what that means. If not, talk to me after the service. I'll help you get it. <laughs> they look at us and say we're very conservative. 
Others look at us and say Salem's liberal. And so we use those terms, and sometimes it's based off of where we are at ourselves, if someone is conservative or someone's liberal. And sometimes it's okay, maybe, in descriptions to use some of those terms, but I think we can mislabel people. We can mislabel others in our brotherhood, and we can mislabel churches sometimes with these kind of terms. But sometimes they're helpful maybe in identifying ideas, theologies, teachings, and movements. Has wokeism come into our church as well when it comes to some of these things? And if you don't know what woke is, then go home and praise the Lord and don't worry about it. But if you do, I think, let me, let me explain things. Have we accepted some of the things? And I'll let you look at those for a little bit. And then I'm going I'm to give you several examples that I could think could maybe help us see this. I was just talking to a fellow this last week, grew up in this church. He's in a different denomination today. And I think was involved somewhat maybe on the leadership team at some level, not in pastoral work himself. But he was telling me about the fact that he is no longer because, and now this is an extreme, and you'll say, oh, we're not there yet. But how do you get from there to there is the question. And so, and this is what the churches are facing today in America. And if you don't believe the woke culture is affecting the churches, the books are written, um, a lot of them, about wokeism in the church and how it's affecting it. It's Pastor in Granger, I believe it is, that wrote a book on the woke Jesus, and he's talking about where this has all come from and how it's affecting the church. And he's even trying to get pastors around the country to sign a pledge that they won't be that way and that they will teach truth in their churches and they won't be woke. Anyway. So it's out there. This friend of mine was telling me that in his church, a fellow that was a friend, somewhat of a friend of the pastor for a number of years, has uh, since moved in with his girlfriend, shacking up. And the pastor refuses to do anything about it. And so my friend talked to him and said, what? Why aren't we doing something? Why isn't something going on? And he said, well, you have to remember, he said, he is the only black person in our church, the only black man in our church, and if we discipline him, can you imagine what kind of ramifications we're going to get? So you say, well, that's not in our churches, but I do think, and sometime I'll explain this more, maybe have a message on it, I do think we can be moving away from a Christo and Bibliocentric Christianity, which puts Christ and his word as central and I'm afraid we're moving into a journey-centric Christianity where people's journeys take precedent over the Word of God. Think about that one for a while. And maybe sometime I'll share on that a little bit more. And so that man's journey and the church's journey is more important than the Word of God. Another example just recently a week ago, I was talking to another pastor friend. He would be in a, a more conservative Anabaptist setting, um, whatever you, again, we're using labels, but similar, similar to us. Maybe not quite what we're at, similar to us. He's older than I am because he remembers things I don't. 
And by the way, when Jerry was asking those questions, and I had some right answers, it wasn't because I don't I remember that much from 1972. It's because I was treasurer for a number of years and looked at a lot of those things and just have heard the discussions. So just to clear that up, in case you thought I'm old enough to remember all that. I do remember going to those meetings, though, when it was packed full. And maybe that goes along a little bit with what I'm going to share right now. So this pastor friend of mine was telling me just a week ago that he remembers going to the Brunk Brother Revival meetings. And, okay, I'm going to ask if anybody remembers that, and I guarantee you they're going to be older than most of you. Anybody remember going to those? Yeah, there's a few. Yeah, see, it's us older ones. I vaguely remember going to one, I think. But I, I did later, when I was probably in my late teens, early 20s, uh, my dad was getting a hold of some of those tapes from those meetings. When it was tapes. I listened to a lot of those and I bought more of them because I learned a lot from them. And I was telling somebody here recently, I, I guess I liked when we used to get a visiting minister in and Maybe they shook their Bible at you, slapped this pulpit a few times and shouted a little and you knew where they stood and you didn't have to agree with everything, but at least you knew what they stood for. Well, the Brunk brothers would, for those of you that don't know, they went around having tent meetings and they preached to thousands of people. And when I say thousands, that's what I mean. Often the tent had somewhere between six to 10,000 people come out at an evening to hear the word of God preached. Now, I tell you what, we, you couldn't get that many conservative Mennonites out today to hear a preacher if, I, I don't know what he'd have to do to get them out. But anyway, that's beside the point. But anyway, that many people would come out nightly. And I think sometimes, at least in one setting, they were there, preached every night for seven weeks because the community just wouldn't let them go. They kept begging them to stay, 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 and preach. You didn't have to be extremely smart to know where George stood on something when he preached. And this pastor I was talking to said he remembers going there when he was probably six or seven, and uh, George got up and he preached about television and the evils of television. It's when television was starting to come into church, probably the late 50s, early 60s, somewhere in there. He's preaching about television. And he said the next night, he said he remembers people brought their televisions, set them outside the tent, and afterwards they went out there with sledgehammers and smashed them all up. Okay, that's where we were then. Now, here's why I'm saying this wokeism is affecting us in our churches. This pastor told me he was at a family reunion just very recently, and one of his brothers came who was in a conservative Mennonite church. And I don't know, somehow another brother in that church heard one of Brunk's messages, and here's what he said. If somebody stood up in our church and preached like that, I'd walk out. You think we're not being affected by our culture? Now, maybe you'd say, that's one person that doesn't like. I used to fill the tent, six to 10,000 people. And today, I'm afraid that probably hits us closer to home than we'd like to admit. Somebody preached like that, and I'd walk out. Maybe I'll give this example yet, too. You knew I was preaching today, so you don't have your crock pots on high anyway. So. <laughs> Let some young upstart out west start spewing theology. 
so-called, on social media. I would have some phrases maybe for the theology, but I'll stop there. I'll get called self-righteous if I'm not careful. Um, And let people agree with him. And oh, they are wonderful. Oh, yes, you got it. Oh, yes, 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 yes. And let somebody respond on social media and say, I don't think that's right. I think you're wrong. And challenge them. And they come out of the woodwork. If you know who I'm talking about, you know what I'm talking about, too. Can spew anything that's on the edge of Christianity that's not even biblical. I'm not saying it all isn't. And boy, you disagree with it. But you can agree with it. That's fine. You've got to tolerate it. Tolerate, tolerate, tolerate. So, in our culture today, who is the person not tolerated? You're supposed to tolerate everyone, right? You're supposed to accept everyone. You're supposed to accept gays, lesbians, transgender, fuzzies, all these crazy things going on. You're supposed to accept all that stuff. Now, I'm talking to culture now. I'm not talking to church. So I'm going to use this label because it's used in culture, okay? Let a conservative-minded person stand up and say, this isn't right. They may not even be a Christian. They may be. And who suddenly is no longer tolerated? The people who say tolerate everything and everyone will not tolerate someone saying, you're wrong. This isn't right. So has that worked its way into our churches? And again, some people stand up and say it in ways that aren't right. Some people say it in ways that are. So drawing lines. We all draw lines somewhere. If you don't draw lines, and by that I mean things you would or would not do, things you would or would not accept, especially in your brotherhood or in your family or in your own life, if you don't draw any lines, I'm going to say something now that, again, could be label me as self-righteous. It's fine. If you don't draw any lines based on the Word of God, you are not a Christian. And if you can show me otherwise, I guess maybe I'll change my mind. You're going to draw lines somewhere. Everyone draws lines somewhere. If they draw lines nowhere, they are not a believer because God says draw lines. And so we draw lines that we don't want to cross. And if we do, we feel badly about it. And we ask God to forgive us. And so we draw lines at different places sometimes. I wouldn't be allowed to preach in some people's churches. Either because of my, the way I practice my Christianity or my theological beliefs. I can tell you of ministers who I doubt very much would let me preach in their church on subjects like Calvinism. Because they wouldn't want to hear what I'd have to say. 
there are some that wouldn't let me preach there because they've drawn their lines at a different place with regard to practice. And you know what? That's fine. If they've drawn their line somewhere that excludes me, then keep your line, and I'm fine with that. And I don't have to believe that they're holier than thou because they, don't, they would draw their line someplace differently. There's people I wouldn't want to see in this pulpit either because we've drawn our line somewhere, and that's okay. We have to be careful that we don't draw the line so tightly that the only person that can fit in our little box is me, myself, and I, because now we can become self-righteous. On the other hand, we don't draw the line so far out there that it doesn't matter. But we all draw lines someplace. I would hope you have drawn lines. Um, the question is this. Are we drawing lines or building walls? And that can be the question. If we're on one side, sometimes we label people over here as being self-righteous. If we're over here, we label people over here sometimes being self-righteous. And so within the last few years, besides putting up with COVID, we also went through our statement of faith and practice, which was challenging. And that brings out sometimes where different people draw their lines. We we're faced with the need of doing something about a school. That brings out things that sometimes you can see where people draw their lines. And so we have to decide, are we going to allow lines being drawn at different places as long as they're biblical for us then to build walls instead of drawing lines? And you might say, well, yeah, those people, not those people. No, 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 this morning, I want us to all look at ourselves. <clears throat> you know, I've been thinking about this message longer than what any of you have. And so I've had to think about this and challenge myself. And it's hard to think about it sometimes. Am I? Where am I at on this thing? And so as we think about this, the question is, am I self-righteous? This morning it's not for us to look at others and label them that way. It's for us to look at ourselves, each of us, and say, am I self-righteous? Or do I need to get back to the Word of God and recognize that my righteousness comes only through faith in Jesus Christ and being obedient to Him and then working with my brothers and sisters as long as it's appropriate. There are places, like I say, where we draw our lines. We can't go there. And I would also ask us to then respect each other where we draw our lines. Not everyone draws our lines at the same place. For ourselves or our families. But as long as it's within the parameters that we have set as a brotherhood, that we can respect those. And by that I mean we don't have to decide if someone else's are too tight or too loose or they ought to draw the line here, they ought to draw. No, we respect each other and we move forward with our lines where we feel comfortable but not using them to build a wall. Let's pray. Father in heaven, 
I just pray that you would speak to each of our hearts. Help us, Lord, to see in our own hearts areas where we can become uh, holier than thou in our attitudes. Help us, Lord, to also be willing to see others and not to put them in places where they're not, label them in ways that they should not be labeled. Help us not to build walls either between others or around our own little group. But help us, Lord, to be loving to each other and help us, Lord, to respect each other and help us all, Lord, to work together and find our righteousness solely in you. We pray all this in Jesus' name.